0: It's something where I want to actually teach you and encourage you to learn for yourself. This is something that a lot of people don't tackle. A lot of people, maybe you're here in this room and you've never read a single verse out of the book that we're going to reference today. But our series is on the book of Leviticus. And so we are starting this series, and I don't plan on going verse by verse through um, the, the actual book of Leviticus, but I do want to highlight some things over the next several weeks, um, and I want to show them to you starting today, but I really wanted to give us just the right starting point of Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says this very clearly, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and Training in righteousness so that the servant of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So here at Celebrate Church, we believe that the Bible is God's word and it's true. It's his revelation of himself to us as humans. And so when we look at God's word, we can't distance ourselves from certain sections of God's word. We've got to take the entirety of it and look at it for what it is and see what we can find. We believe here at our church and many other Christian Bible-believing churches believe the same thing, that the word of God is infallible the way that we've received the word of God and understand what we have in our Bible or maybe as the case may be in your phone, uh, the Bible that's there, it means to not have any errors when it regards God's divine revelation. And so we consider it to be the authority in our life, the way that we lead our lives is important as believers, and we are to be different. In fact, we're going to find that out in the book of Leviticus, that we're to be called out from among all others and live a life that is impacting others for the good and for the betterment of them as well as the kingdom of God. In order to do that, we've really got to understand what God says about our lives. In fact, I've had the opportunity to help some of us here in our church to actually change direction in some areas of our life where we thought we were heading in the right direction. But then all of a sudden we're like, Hey, let's see what the word of God says about this. Relationships have been restored in this very room because we started to obey God's word about handling conflict, small things like that, that God's word is it's, chock full of. And so we want to look to see what Leviticus has to say um, and give that our, our best attention. The Bible should be the central focus for our life as believers. And so I want to challenge you during this series of messages, that that you would not just uh, turn the knob <laughs> and shut off. Because the temptation is there to say, Leviticus, it's all about like, you know, cutting up animals and putting them on an altar and I don't understand the point of it. And so it, there's a temptation for you to zone out, but I want you to press in. Um, really, it's important for us to look at God's inspired word and see that it's unchanging and it's unchanging because he is unchanging. He doesn't request or require animals as sacrifices any longer but if you have a cow you want to give me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he doesn't require that any longer, but he does require us. He requires our hearts, amen? Actually, my girls would rather you give us a horse, but I heard you're not supposed to buy a horse or a boat, so I'm going to stick to the place where I'm wise and not do either of those. Um, we're a gospel-centered church. Uh, we talk about uh, the gospel because we are really thankful for the New Testament, but we don't want to dismiss or disregard the Old Testament. There's this fallacy, this falsehood that has come into the church in different ways and at different times that basically says everything that Jesus did is the most important, which is true. Okay, he's the fulfillment of lots of prophecy, and we understand that as it is. But more so than that, they've they've kind of gone the temptation or the way of disregarding the old stuff to just take the new stuff. And so we might be the people who look to the to the Bible in Genesis for creation and the story of Abraham. We might be the people who look at the wisdom of Proverbs and we read the joyful songs and sometimes the terrible uh, things that David wrote about his enemies, and we're like, yeah. God, answered that prayer. And then we jump into the New Testament and we're like, but thank Jesus, he's here with us now, and the Holy Spirit is here with us now. So we, we have this thing where we're kind of dismissive, and I don't know if you've ever been guilty of this, uh, but I've been guilty of dismissing or dodging the weird stuff. I've done that too. In fact, I told a couple buddies of mine who are pastors as well, and said to them, uh, they saw the picture on Facebook of us going into the series, and they said, uh, what in the world? world are you doing, buddy? Why would you go into the book of Leviticus? Um, Because I want to take on the challenge and tackle even the tough stuff. Here's the deal. God is the same, and it says so in Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, if that be the case, our God is. And when we look at the Book of Leviticus, we'll be able to see the character of God. We'll be able to see His love for His people. We'll be able to see a lot of richness in some of the um, some of the other aspects that we may not normally look at. So, it has merit. It's all too often neglected, uh, but I think you'll be surprised at what we discover and look at. Um, I want you to understand the book and the content. So I am taking this like a teacher, because I do teach on the side. It's my side hustle. Um, it doesn't pay very much, okay? But um, I do teach on the side, and I teach Bible at CCA. I encourage my students to take notes. So I thought, you know what? Since we're doing a teaching series, I'll encourage you to take notes too. I understand we ran out because we have so many guests this morning. But take a few notes this morning, because if you are like my students, I might just Show up next week with a reward if you if you have the right answer. Um, so some of you were around when I brought cookie brownies to the whole church, hit them under the seats, and you got one. You just may get a surprise next week if you can answer a test question in church. On Sunday, so it will be rewarding for you to be able to take notes, okay? Let me give you a little bit of background. The um, the image that you see in front of you on the screen today, that image right there is not just some barren place that I picked a picture of. It actually happens to be Mount Sinai. If you look on Google Images and go through, you can see that it's a very barren place, and it's at the bottom of an area which we would know as the Arabian Peninsula. Okay, It's at a place where um, they, the people of God have been traveling to, and now that they've been rescued from Egypt, they're in this place, and they're camping out for days on end. Let's pull up that map and let me point out a few things to you. It is a little bit small, so I'll take my step up here and I'll show you. The area that's been circled, the small word there is Egypt. This is an area of the world. At the top, you see all the green where Turkey is. Then you'll see this little arrow pointing up to the tiny little nation of Israel as it is today. What the people of God did, this large green piece where it goes down into this river, is the Nile River. Okay, So what the people of God who were rescued out of Egypt during the days of the Exodus had to accomplish was they had to cross through the Nile River over into this little strip of land mass, and then by God's directive, they went through the Red Sea. Now, the Red Sea is this large blue piece, but it's got kind of two fingers that go up. They had to cross over a place that was wet, and God made it dry. God performed a miracle in order to set them free and deliver deliver them. So they come to the bottom where the arrow points down, the bottom of this little peninsula. It's a deserted place even to this day. There are a few uh it, people who live there, a few um businesses and things like that that are in that area. It's a hard place to grow crops, to raise animals, anything. It really is a barren place. At the tip of that little peninsula that's jutting out is Mount Sinai. So this is the idea that we that we understand God has brought them through the Red Sea, he's brought them to the place of being at Mount Sinai. In the book of Exodus, he's given them instructions to build something we call a tabernacle. It's the precursor to the church building that we have today. It's an ancient sort of form. Then once they're done at Mount Sinai and they go to travel up to Israel, that's where they spend essentially on this whole area of land, that, that little piece, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert waiting for God to lead them to the door of the promised land. Now the promised land is Israel and God says, I want you to go in there and wipe the people out. I'm claiming that land as my own land for my own people. So that gives you a little bit of background as to where we are today and where we start. The book of Leviticus is the third book in the Bible and tradition says that it's written or compiled, you could say, by Moses and some helpers. So Moses has his hands inside of this. The evidence generally supports a 13th century dismissal or exodus from Egypt. Now, I know you weren't expecting a history lesson when you got here. Some of you might be excited about it. Some of my actual students are in the room and they may not be excited about hearing the same thing or me telling them to keep notes. But at this time, Egypt's 19th dynasty is ruling so after the Exodus happens, they wander for a time. God gives them the Ten Commandments at this place, Mount Sinai, and then they make camp there. When they're regrouping as a nation, God wants to show them the importance of following him as they prepare to go toward the promised land. Now it's important to note, we take a lot by faith. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, if you ever check it out, we like to call it the hall of faith, not the hall of fame. But these people are famous people mostly who have made a decision in their faith to be able to choose to believe in God, regardless of what the circumstances look like. Having said that, we take a lot of our our faith on faith. It's by faith that we receive salvation. It's by faith that I believe that I wrote a a faith promise to be able to put some money in to help out with the teenagers. I I am doing that by faith. I'm not doing it by sight. (laughs) Um, Seriously, no, I'm really not. And I know that you're not either, and I'm thankful. But here's what I wanted to tell you when I talk about faith. I want you to understand that Egyptian texts Archaeological finds and the Bible all say the same thing about the exodus of a people group called the Israelites. They were called something different to them in their language, but it's referencing the Israelites. So they really were enslaved in Egypt, according to the word of God, for more than 400 years And this is the moment that they come to the place of being set free and God wants to give them some directives about what to do in the future. So let's pull up that tabernacle picture. This picture here is just uh, an image that you can find online. It shows what essentially the inner area of the tabernacle would be. All of the area surrounding would be where the people camped out. They would build their tents and their temporary dwellings there. The Bible gives us some numbers as well as historical records that the nation of Israel that exited would have been more than a million people. The Bible tells us, and so do historical documents, that the Egyptian ruler at that time was nervous because they continued to multiply in number, in strength, and power. So now if you could put yourself in Moses' shoes for just a second and think about the fact that you are going to try to herd one million people through a desert without much crops or provision that could be found... And then whenever something happens at this tabernacle, there's more to unfold as we go through the series. But when God's presence is there, there's a significant thing to see. There's a pillar of fire or a cloud of smoke. And all of a sudden, when God wakes up, I don't know if he sleeps, I'm not saying that, but when he decides, he chooses to move. And as his presence moves, everybody goes, pulls up their tent pegs, starts packing up their house and going. Can you imagine how much work that would have been to get a million people, and then to get them camped out for a few days, get everything set up, and get the house of God set up. So they would be all surrounding this, and this would have been the city center in the desert. This would have been a focal point for the people. So they would have come through where you see the front door, this front gate. They would have come here, and then you see a ramp that goes up to that altar. It would have been so that you could get the livestock that you were bringing up to the altar for sacrifice. So inside of the small building would have been something else, and there would have been some different articles or pieces of furniture, and it was the place where God's presence was dwelling. The Bible talks about an ark of the covenant that had some artifacts inside of it that was resting inside of that little tent inside of that parameter or that little area. So the tabernacle is really important for us to understand because there's a lot in Leviticus, or we could say almost the majority or all of it, deals with what you do when you get there. So we're going to make sure that we keep that in our minds as we talk through it. And they're going to be in the desert for 40 years. God knows that. And so he's got to give them some rules and some thoughts about what's good to do and what's not good to do. So let me cover a couple misconceptions this morning. Have you ever heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover? Have you ever said that phrase about someone? Have you ever wished that somebody didn't judge you by your cover? Come on, slip up your hand. Yeah, I do too. We've been there. So I want to say that about the actual book of Leviticus, that we don't want to judge it by its cover or by looking at some, maybe what we would consider dull um, things in the first few verses and then skipping the entire thing. But having the wrong approach often leads us to the wrong conclusion. I am telling you, you should write that down. <laughs> Think about a situation in your own life where you came in with the wrong approach into a situation, into a relationship, into whatever it might be. It could be with a coworker, a friend, your spouse. It could be something like that. But when you come in with the wrong approach, you oftentimes, if not 100% of the time, reach the wrong conclusion. And so I want to teach you how to view this book like an ancient Israelite. Would have been viewing the book of Leviticus and understanding it. I want us to have that right perspective because as current day Christians, we oftentimes look backwards through the cross. Listen to me. This morning, the majority of our songs talked about the blood of Jesus, how it redeems us, saves us, sets us free. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that his sacrifice that was made is a life-giving sacrifice literally for all of humanity. So it's hard when we look at that and see that that's the climax of what God's plan was for salvation, to not look back through the rest of the Old Testament and try to spot Jesus in every one of those areas. So I want I want you to be careful though to not do that because he's not there as much as you may have heard he could be. In Leviticus, there's a lot that goes on about sacrifices that doesn't necessarily have to do with an an eternal sacrifice that would purify me from my sin. So we've got to have the wrong, we've got to have the right approach, not the wrong approach, get rid of the wrong approach as we look at the book of Leviticus. And we have to be careful when we are reading God's word. I really, I want you to walk away with some tips and truth today about this. I want you to be careful not to breeze through the word of God. I want to challenge you to read the book of Leviticus over the next several weeks as we go through, and it's going to be a challenge for you to stay focused and to read through it, but it's going to be worth it because when we put that effort out there, we we put our full foot forward in that direction, we cannot read into it what's not there And we also can't dismiss the things that are there. And so we don't want people to read into situations in our own lives, right? And we don't want to do that in God's word either. Our cornerstone verse for this teaching series is Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. It says this, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the people's That you should be mine. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. If we look at the Bible wrong and read into it, you may have, and I have here in the South, heard things spoken in cultural context uh, that are disfavorable towards interracial marriages or relationships. The Bible shows that God wanted to keep his people separate from those who worshiped other gods. It wasn't about skin color and that sort of thing, but we somehow have gotten to the place where we've decided, well, God's word says that, and I heard that, so that's, that's no, because then we all of a sudden develop a prejudice. I hope I'm not stepping on your toes, but we have had and will continue to have a multi-ethnic church, and I'm thankful for that because God's people are everywhere of all shapes, sizes, races, financial backgrounds, economic, social, everything, is the kingdom of God is beautiful in its essence. And so we've got to make sure that when we think about something like this, when he says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, have separated you from the peoples, that we don't read into it something that's not really there. But let me talk about holiness for a moment. Holiness, you should write this down. This is what I tell my students. Holiness does not equal righteousness. There are pens in the seatbacks, but there can be some pens back there in the sound booth or out on that table. Holiness does not equal righteousness in the way that we think when we've heard this statement. Have you ever heard the statement, Oh, she's holier than thou. Or stop acting holier than thou right? Have you ever heard that statement? We know that statement, right? It's always made regarding our actions or our behaviors. Well, because he does that or she does that, that makes them less holy. But I want to show you really what the word translated holy from the Hebrew language really is and really means. The Hebrew language has this word, which I'll probably butcher, but I'll tell you anyway, so it sounds cool. Kadosh, okay? It's spelled Q-U. O-D-O-S-H-E. That's the Hebrew word for holy. It's got a lot of other associated words in it. And in fact, in our cornerstone verse or the key verse for our series, when he says, you are to be holy to me, he actually uses another derivative when he says, and I have separated you from all other people. My wife said this a few weeks ago in worship and we talk about it often. I love this about God. It says about the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, he didn't pick them because they were cute. He didn't pick them because they were handsome. He didn't pick them because they were large in number or strong in strength. He didn't pick them for that. He picked them them because he chose them, okay? (laughs) He picked them because he wanted to. And he says, if you're mine, you look different than everything else around you. So this is an adjective that describes something's purpose, or use, more than it describes the activity or the action. So as we read through Leviticus, we'll see things about the holy basin or the, the articles that are used in the tabernacle that are meant for cleansing purposes or for sacrificial purposes. And when we see that, that's because you don't have a knife like that in your house, There is a distinct knife that's just in the tabernacle that God said, do this with this thing, then put it in a box and keep it clean, keep it safe. You've got to understand, people, they were not living with modern medicine, refrigeration, or anything like that, so God is giving them some stuff and some tips to keep them alive, That's really what he's doing in the book of Leviticus because he wants them long enough to be able to get in and possess the promised land. So holiness, as we understand it in Leviticus, is very rarely about behavior. And it's more about separation or being set apart and distinct from others. You know this if you own a set of china or if your mother or grandmother had some china. You don't use those dishes every day they get dusty for the entire year, or you shouldn't, that's what they would tell you, because you just bring them out at special times and for special reasons. They've been set apart, or we could say in the church world, they are sacred. So to illustrate this point, listen to what King David writes in Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse one, listen to what he says. He says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, Bless his holy name. How can the name of God actively be good behaving? Right? So we have to understand that even there, it's that the essence of who God is is represented by his name and his name is above every other name. It's a special name. In fact, we believe that you shouldn't use the name of the Lord in vain, do we not? The Bible is clear about that and it means even something different than what we have been thinking as well. But even the name of God is holy. This doesn't mean his name has behaviors. It means that his name is set apart. Your Latino friend's mom didn't get the memo when she named her son Jesus, okay? Sorry, that was, was that poorly planned? Okay, we're just gonna go on. Uh, I was just saying the name of Jesus and the name of God are far above and different than what we would use in normal everyday language. To this day, practicing Jews whether they're orthodox and super strict or whether they're just semi-religious semi-practicing Jews they actually don't write the name of God which the Hebrew name is Yahweh they don't write that out with all of its syllables they abbreviate it by taking out those things that we would call um, vowels and they keep just the consonants thank you teacher on the front row Um, so they would, they would write, even though it's spelled Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, they would take away those vowels and just have a capitalized letter, Y-H-W-H. And even for the English equivalent of God, they never put the O. It's G-D. This is something that's important to them because they believe that there is a reverence to the name of God and it's not used by common people. Now they're misguided. I'll give you that. But I'm saying the point is there all the way throughout the Hebrew scripture, which is what we're in. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Throughout that time, it was important for them to understand that the name of God was reverent and there was to be honor given to his name because it represented who he is. We still treat our names like that. If somebody says something bad about you in a sentence with your name, you're like, don't drag my name through the dirt, right? We're not talking that our name has a behavior, but we're saying it represents who we are. So holy means set apart, distinct from all others or sacred. Listen again to the verse with that understanding. Leviticus 20 verse 26, you shall be set apart for me, to me. For I, the Lord, am separate. He's above all else. And I have separated you from all others, right? All other people, that you should be mine. And we could tag on there, mine alone. He wants our allegiance, He wants our loyalty. He wants our love. So he's holy and we're to be holy because we belong to him. So here's another misconception. You may have heard this phrase before. Well, I'm not the holiest person, but I'm trying. Or, well, I can't be perfect or I can't be holy. The Bible actually tells us that we're to strive to do that in every way we can. To be set apart and separate. When they look at the body of Christ, they should see the faith family of God behaving differently than your normal secular jobs do than the people treat you on those other in those other places and other realms we as the family of god are we are to be different and we get that understanding because we are grafted in to the originals which is the israelites so the word holy or its associated words show up more than 150 times In the book of Leviticus, God is all about separating the things that are for him from the normal commonplace and separating his people from those others that would bring them down or cause them to be at a place of committing sin. So there's a marked difference between what we know to be holy and what the ancient Israelite really understood it to be. Today, I want to show you something else, which I think is a misunderstood concept in Leviticus, and that is this, ritual impurity versus moral impurity. So as we dive into this today, I don't have a large section of scripture from Leviticus that we're going to unpack I wanted to give you some, just an overview of where we're at the starting point at, where we're starting at, and let you in on some secrets in the way that we look at scripture. We're not, I'm not performing any tricks or any kind of manipulation. I'm just trying to look at the text and explain it the best I can. So ritual impurity would have to do with things where you were unclean in a physical sense. The Bible is really weird in Leviticus. It talks about birth, death, sex, and a bunch of other stuff. And it says, hey, when these things happen, you are ritually impure and you can't just show up to God's house. That's not because God wouldn't accept you the way you were and bring you into his presence and family. It's because they were living in a different day and they could contaminate other people very easily and then they could contaminate those things that we call holy inside of the house of God. Moral impurity is something different and we'll read about that a little bit today too. The moral impurity would be the commission of a sin, whether it was known or unknown uh, or and. Confessed, I guess I would say, uh, whether you confessed it or didn't confess it is a good way to say it. If you had a moral impurity, nobody in the church would know it. Same thing today right? Nobody in the church would know it. If you were stepping out on your wife or if you were doing something that was inappropriate, they wouldn't know because we don't talk about that stuff, right? But the moral impurity is hidden from the normal, natural eye in most cases and cannot be seen. You could come and fellowship in the presence of God and still have a major struggle in your life that you're not surrendering to him and you'd still be welcome. But if you had had a birth, a death, had sex with your spouse, anything like that, you had to wait several hours or days even in some cases before you showed back up because they didn't want the fluids and all of the other stuff that comes along with the impurity to be part of any contagion because they wanted to stay alive. God wanted to keep them alive. God wants you alive. If I could try to make some application to this, the Bible is very clear in Psalm, and I, I love what David writes when he says that God knows all the days of my life before I lived a single one, that God knows me before I was formed in my mother's womb. And that's not a statement about Jesus or the miracle, uh, immaculate conception. That's a statement literally for all of humanity that God knows us even before we're born. He knew that we would be here. He knows the decisions we'll make in our life, and he does want to keep you alive. He's got a purpose for each one of us. So here's some weird stuff. In Leviticus 11, if you touched a dead body, it would cause a ritual impurity. In Leviticus 12, if you had a child, that would cause ritual impurity as well. But you've got to understand this. Birth, death, sex, disease, all of that stuff is part of a normal human's life. How many of you have been sick one time in your life? okay, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've had sex one time in your life, but you've all been born, and you haven't yet died, amen? Okay, so you can raise your hands for those, okay? Here's the idea, though. They're part of a normal life. It's not a commentary on how close you are to God. So here's another misconception, and I heard it as a kid, I understood that there was some weird stuff in Leviticus. So, you know, being a boy and want to check out the weird stuff, I checked out the weird stuff and I heard other people talk about it in such a way that it almost made sense to me in my immaturity that if a woman was experiencing her menstrual period, her cycle and that kind of thing, it seemed as though she wasn't welcome in the house of God and that God didn't love her or loved her less. That's the kind of idea and understanding people have when they look at this. But that is not a commentary on the closeness of your relationship with God. It was merely to keep you alive and to keep others alive. So they would be ritually unclean when they had these things occur but it really has nothing to do with morality, these places talking about impurity when it regards the physical body. And there's some weird stuff about you know spots on your skin and if you have an open wound and if you this and if you that. But those people are not morally unclean. Those people are just simply physically and what we would say ritually unclean because of the issues that are going on. They wouldn't be allowed in sacred space. So those people were never any further away from God than they were the day before that wound happened, that issue happened, or whatever. They are just experiencing life in a desert place without modern medicine, without refrigeration, without technology. And God wants to help them through all of these things. So... According to the Levitical law, There is no necessary connection with a person being right with God in terms of their spiritual life when it had to deal with these unclean, ritually unclean things. So it was understood to be contagious. I would say that again. Ritual impurity in the Old Testament and in this time was understood, even if it was misunderstood by them, it was understood to be contagious and that they could contaminate others if they touched a dead thing and then didn't wash because they didn't have, normal soap like we use today and antibacterial and all that stuff, and they went and they ate or they cooked your meal and then you ate that food, there could be death and pestilence and all sorts of stuff. That does not happen mostly, does not happen with moral impurity. You sin, you're all on your own. You may drag other people with you or commit a sin with someone, but the idea is we are each personally responsible for what we have going on in our heart and in our mind. So moral impurity is what we would call moral corruption. This would be an impurity that morally defiled someone, dirtied them, and it corrupted the sinner. It would be something where they committed an act of violence towards someone, maybe the death or murder of someone. Maybe they were idolaters and served other gods, which is a big deal in Leviticus, God is saying, I am giving you, think about that map again. God is saying, I am going to put you in a piece of land geographically. There are some people there that you're going to have to oust and get rid of. But here's the deal. When you get there, kill them. Don't look at their pretty women and say, Ooh, I'm going to marry you because they've got their own gods and their own stuff. And I don't want you mixing those things together. So there are some sins that are mentioned specifically in Leviticus. And if you wanted to just note some of these for yourself, you could. I'm not going to guarantee you that this is a test question. But they are idolatry. That would be in Leviticus chapter 18. He says, stay away from other gods. Think about the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, right? None other but me. The other would be something which many people have done, even just as a, discovery, investigation, experiment. And that would be something that they refer to in Leviticus 19 as turning to mediums or necromancers. That's a biblical term. We have an understanding of what that would be today. It would include things like fortune telling and seeking out the knowledge of the future through the spiritual or divine realm without the one who's leading that realm. God's always been, hey, you know what? That's great. I made these stars and you can look at them, but they are not gonna tell you whether you're gonna have a good day or a bad day. You are the person who decides that. And so we we can't live by a horoscope or by a fortune telling. We We don't wanna do that. And God's word is clear to those people. Hey, listen, don't seek counsel from those who are saying they're in the spiritual realm, but not fully focused on me as their God. Another one, which is, it it did happen in the Bible, Leviticus 20 talks about sacrificing your children alive to the God Molech. Molech was um, was a deity that they understood to be real in other places with those other people groups. And whenever they mixed in and started to take over territory and that kind of thing, people were literally taking their firstborn and sacrificing their child, the Bible says, through fire. They were burning their children alive as a sacrifice. So he says, don't do that either. If you do that, there's a penalty that comes along with it. And this is not ritual impurity. This is the sort of moral impurity and corruption that we're talking about. And the other thing, Numbers 35, which is not in Leviticus, it's another place, but Numbers 35 tells us in the Old Testament that deliberately murdering someone is something that could cost you your own life. It would bring about moral impurity. There are a couple differences I'll highlight before we close the message and before we have our our new members welcomed in and stuff like that. And that is this. First, the ritual impurity normally was not the result of sin. When the Bible talks about um, the bodily functions that are involved, as it regards a spousal relationship when they connect with one another and have sex, it was not saying that they are in sin when they're doing that. It was merely trying to say that, again, that ritual impurity normally was not the result of a sin. Okay? The other thing you need to realize is that moral impurity was the direct result of a specific and a serious sin. Somebody shout out some sins that we know of in the Bible. Lying, murder, adultery, help me out, gluttony, gossip, coveting, there's a, there's a lot in there. If you committed a specific serious sin, then moral impurity was what you had to own up to. The second thing that's important to understand is, as we said, that that ritual impurity was contagious, it could defile others by contact, but that moral impurity was all on you. And the third thing to look at and understand is that ritual impurity was temporary. You were only unclean until you got a bath. Literally, the Bible says, wash wash up, stay out of the house of God for a couple days and come back. And when you showed back up, everything was back as it should be with you and bringing a sacrifice and all those other things. I feel bad for the priests because when you read Leviticus, they had to like inspect wounds. They had to be like the doctor for people. Hey, do I have any white spots in this open sore? If I do, the Bible says I should. Well, I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) I'm glad you're not coming to me for a checkup. I'm glad that we have modern medicine. But having said that, when we talk about the ritual impurity and the moral impurity, the moral impurity was permanent. There wasn't really a sacrifice to give or to offer for the person who had committed a moral a moral act of corruption, you could say. It was basically permanent in Old Testament law. If you killed somebody, the whole camp got together and killed you. I mean, that, I don't plan on killing anybody in my life. Um, I'm glad that we don't live like that any longer and that it's not just immediate death maybe in some cases, But having said that, there was a finality to the punishment that was received. You can lie about somebody, you can gossip, you can covet, you can overeat, you can do whatever you choose to do. And you can go to Jesus, who the Bible in the book of Hebrews says is the author and finisher, completer of our faith. And you can say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Please, I confess my sin before you. Heal me of this thing. Help my heart to heal so that I don't do this thing again. I repent. I tell my students, and I've told you too, if you are heading in the direction of sin and saying, ooh, sin, yes, yes, yes. Repentance is a change of mind And a change of heart that says, "Eh, even though that's kind of desirable, I'm going to go this way towards God and I'm going to not do that thing again. So we've got to see it for what it really is. And I'm thankful that we don't live in the day where moral impurity was literally the death of you. I'm thankful that God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice have made the difference. So there's a whole host of things in the Old Testament law that you couldn't be cured by by just bringing a sacrifice to the church. You still can't be cured by bringing a sacrifice to the church, but stay up with your heart for the house pledge. We're excited about what God is doing. The sacrificial system was all about taking care of those ritual impurities. God knows all things. He knew them then. He knew that people wouldn't develop technology and medicine the way that we have it today. He knew that they wouldn't have refrigeration and all of those things and cleaning techniques. So he provisionally gave them the ability to worship him where they were with what they had. And that's a powerful thought that God wants you to worship Him and serve Him. Uh, I've heard it said like this, to bloom or to blossom where you've been planted. I love the fact that we have people in this room who have bloomed and blossomed where they've been planted. We have some people in our community who've moved in for jobs and do move out for jobs, but they're part of our family for a season. We have somebody named Caroline right there on the second row, if you just wave at us. Uh, she came to MC and she made this her church home. Today is her last Sunday with us. She's moving on with her life and leaving us behind. And we're really sad about that. Let's give her a round of applause to tell her how much we love love her. But God wants you to bloom and blossom where you're planted. I'm thankful because I can tell you 10 things about Carolina and what she's meant to our church, how she's helped in prayer ministry and kids ministry, how she's developed in leadership and all of those things in ways that she was not at the place of two or three years ago when she first got here. God has done something great in her life because she made the choice to bloom and blossom where she's been planted. And that's the same thing that God wants us to have in our hearts as well. So we've got to think about it in those terms that God geographically knew where they were. He knows where you are too. He knows where you are spiritually. He knows what struggles you face and he wants to help you with them. God wanted to show them that he had a plan for them. God wanted to show his people, that he had a plan for them, and that although I said it somewhat jokingly, the plan was to keep them alive long enough for them to get to the finish line of receiving the blessing that God had for them. He wanted them to be able to come into his presence without impurity. Have you ever felt guilt? Guilt? Raise your hand. Nice and high. That's 100% of us, right? We've all felt guilt. Sometimes it's deserved. (laughs) And sometimes it might just be because of somebody saying something that made us feel a certain way. But when we talk about these kinds of things, we've got to understand that God always desired to have his people with him. He says, I want you to be my people and me to be your God. In fact, that's what we're heading to in the future that one day we'll be together with him forever in a permanent home. We're still in a tabernacle. The Bible actually says that your body in 1 Corinthians, your body is the temple that God resides in now. If you're a believer, God is with you and he's with you in your heart and in your spirit. He wants to live and dwell with his people. And that's the final destination that we're getting to. He wants us to also worship him. So I wanna challenge you, just as I've kind of given you an overview of the book of Leviticus and we've talked about holiness today and those impurities, whether they're physical or of a moral area. I don't know what you're dealing with. Each one of you might be in a different set of circumstances, but I want you to stand with me for just a moment. I want you to close your eyes and just think about the things that were spoken today and I'm gonna pray a prayer over you. And it's a simple prayer that just says this, Holy Spirit, speak to every heart that hears this message. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to allow the word of God to sink deep into your heart and into your life throughout this series and throughout this week. In fact, that's my goal and desire every week for you to live in God's presence and with his power. So if you need something from the Lord as the lights go down, if you need something from the Lord uh, in a relationship, in finance, or whatever it may be, I just want you to slip up your hand. And we can do that. I'm putting my hand up and saying I need God's help with something. If you're next to somebody like that, would you, if you're comfortable with it, would you just put your arm on their shoulder or hand on their back? And let's pray for one another this morning for this brief moment before we bring our new members in because I I never want to leave that moment where we are in the place of need. Go ahead and just whisper a prayer. Father, as you hear these prayers being prayed, we don't know the needs that are represented by those hands, but God, you do. So Lord, we pray for healing, for strength, for grace, for reconciliation, for financial blessing. Lord, for for the ability to work through conflict the way that you want us to. God, I pray today that you would minister and meet every need that's represented by that hand raised, mine included, Lord. I thank you for the work on the cross that you've done. And I thank you that you have a limitless supply of all that we need. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray.